This is a Federal News Network podcast. A call for comments from the National Institute for Standards and Technology gives industry a deadline of next week. NIST is looking for reactions to ideas for critical infrastructure cybersecurity, and it could have a big impact on companies doing business with the government. We get more now from the Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council, Stephanie Castro. And Stephanie, good to have you back. Tell us what NIST is specifically looking for and how industry is reacting. Thanks for having me on again, Tom. NIST released a request for comments, as you noted. It was about a 60-day comment period. And comments are due here on April 25th, next Monday. And it's an interesting request for comments, and it's requiring some detailed response. They are updating what they call their framework for improving critical infrastructure cybersecurity, and we'll just call it the framework. The framework was last updated in 2018. And in this space, so much can happen. You know, you look at it and go, oh, it was only four years ago that it was last updated But so much can happen in the cyber area and the IT sector. And so as we look at what they're asking for, they're looking for information, thoughts about procedures, about standards, about techniques and whatnot. This is really taking the government services technology sector by storm in terms of the level of interest in weighing into this framework. They're also concurrently asking for information from industry on how they should tackle cybersecurity risks in supply chains. And they've created something they call the National Initiative for Improving Cybersecurity in Supply Chains. This should go hand in glove. Tom, the concern that I have about all of this very good work that's happening is that we've got so much information out there about cybersecurity, about frameworks, about these initiatives. What we will be looking for, and we will be submitting PSC comments on this request for comments, is some harmonization stronger guidance about what exactly government services companies should be doing in this space. For example, you know, you've got DHS's cyber efforts under CISA, their Cyber Security and Infrastructure Security Agency. You've got DOD's Cyber Security Maturity Model Certification Process, and there's also a process being run by the Defense Contract Management Agency. All of these different initiatives really need to be harmonized, and I suspect our comments will tackle very closely the issue of harmonizing them and providing guidance that contractors can use in real time in the real world. It seems like there are two components, basically, to what everybody's doing. One is vendors' cybersecurity systems protecting the data that's crucial to them and to the government, the CUI and the rest of it. And then there is the question of the security of what it is suppliers are delivering. And it's mostly software. And even if it's hardware, there's a lot of software in it. And so they're concerned with the bill of materials that's in that software. Two related but really separate efforts and domains that both housed within the vendor community. Is that a fair way to put exactly. it? Exactly. It is a fair way to put it. And when you look at things like the NIST framework, companies will look at it and go, this is a framework, but is it really what we have to comply with? Is it a compliance model? And, you know, when we look at what a framework might provide, you know, it's thoughts, it's procedures, it's that kind of thing. Um, It's really meant to inform companies about what they should be looking at. But small and mid-sized companies are really struggling here because they don't have the internal resources to comply with several different models of how they should be attacking cybersecurity and particularly in supply chains. Because when you think about how many prime contractors the government has, you multiply that tenfold by the number of sub-tier contractors they have and making sure that you have a reasonable assessment of the things that are on your bill of materials or your bill of goods, where that's coming from, whose hands it passed through, 
who had access to it at any given time, it really is um, quite the knot to unravel. And so from a compliance perspective, what we'll be looking for is clearer guidance on what exactly companies should be doing so they can dedicate the necessary resources to be able to work with the U.S. government. We're speaking with Stephanie Castro. She's Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. And something else I wanted to ask you about is the $800 million Ukraine package. I guess this is the second of them. And there's some work for support contractors in here, not just delivering hardware to Ukraine. Yes, Tom. So, you know, I think when people saw media reports about this $800 million package, their attention was grabbed by how many um, helicopters, drones, javelins, which are now uh, ubiquitous in headlines these days when it comes to Ukraine and the importance to Ukraine of this capability. But on the other side of the coin is how are we going to support, sustain, make sure that this equipment is operational? And that really does come down to contractor support. The other element of contractor support, and I'll remind folks about the $13 billion supplemental that was going for Ukraine that was passed earlier this year, you know, half of that was for military support. And half of that, again, was for not only going to Ukraine for equipment and capabilities, but also what are we doing on the U.S. side to flow forces to the proximity of the fight? And services contractors are playing a key role in sustaining and maintaining those lines of communication and and those forces as well. So there's a lot going on here on the contracting side. When you think about what it takes to maintain counter-artillery radar, what it takes to maintain, you know, some of the equipment that they're, they're sending over, I read that it's 200 armored personnel carriers. You know, those come with quite the tail for sustainment and operations. So that's where our contractors are lending not only their expertise, but putting their lives on the line to help support the equipment that we're sending over. I was going to say it's not simply a matter of something you can do from an office in McLean or Ruston or Huntsville, but you've got to be there in Eastern Europe to do this. Yeah. And companies have seen requests for quotes for sending personnel over to places like Poland, the Baltics, elsewhere. And I think a lot of times it gets lost in the mix here. You know, you, you often say the military forces, you know, sign up for risking their lives for a higher goal. Contractors do as well because they're here to support the mission just as much as military personnel are and the civilians that support it. And so I think it's important to remember that they are going into harm's way as well. The other element I would add, Tom, is that we are still supporting the people of Ukraine through humanitarian assistance. And those contractors are also putting their lives on the line as well as their expertise, knowledge, know-how, and whatnot. So I don't want us to forget that it's not just always about the military equipment and support. It's about the humanitarian support, the economic support, and that element of the services contractor community really deserves uh, kudos for the work that they've been putting in. And this all occurs at a time when contractors are dealing with price pressure from inflation, And the government seems to be a step behind in making sure that its allowances and processes are keeping up with the inflation that contractors feel. What are you sensing there? There's a real dichotomy when we talk to the different agencies. If you talk to the General Services Administration, they recently released a letter that gave a moratorium, temporary moratorium, on how many price adjustments you can ask for dealing with inflation. But what I've read in the media is that folks like Deputy Secretary Hicks at Defense are saying they're not seeing a huge influx of requests for these equitable adjustments. And instead, the Defense Department, for example, is turning to Congress and they plan to work with them this summer on how to address inflation in the FY23 fiscal year, which, of course, starts on October 1st. My concern is that inflation is now. 
people are leaving their jobs now because they can no longer support their families in some cases. And so if the government could allow some flexibility, not just in GSA, but elsewhere to allow companies to come in and ask for equitable adjustments, that would go a long way to helping retain the workforce that's necessary to support federal missions. So even though GSA is putting some sort of a clamp on those, that doesn't mean you should abandon them and eat it. You should really do the exception requests that you're entitled to do. It's actually the opposite. GSA has put a a temporary moratorium on the limits for how many equitable adjustments you can ask. So they're encouraging companies to come and say, here's the situation we're facing. Now, they could still deny them. Let's be honest. Uh, Temporary moratorium on the limits is not saying we're going to accept everything that comes across our desk. But it is a hopeful sign to companies that working with GSA, they will understand the pressures that they're feeling, not only in the price of goods, but of the price of people. It's a little disheartening to hear folks, senior leaders from the Defense Department come out and say, you know, we, we can ask companies just to take this out of their profits. Profit margins are very slim and companies have given cost of living increases to their staff over and above what perhaps the government had thought they would. And that is coming out of profit. So there's a very slim margin here. And I hope that across the government, there can be a solution for similar to what maybe GSA has done in allowing additional economic price adjustment requests. I imagine the pressure is more on goods deliverers or services companies that have a goods component to what they're delivering because goods require transportation and handling and packaging, all of those things, direct costs that are going up perhaps faster than people costs are going up. That is definitely a component of it, but I would say government contractors are also dealing with a commercial sector that doesn't have necessarily the limits that being tied to a GSA schedule for labor categories and rates might have. And so it is a tight marketplace for talent. We've heard about in the headlines, the great resignation, people, you know, who have frozen place during the first couple of years of COVID are now uh, peeping their heads up almost like prairie dogs looking around and seeing what's out there. And the game of musical chairs has begun again, where people are leaving their jobs, whereas they might've hunkered down over the last two years. So yes, there's definitely a goods component to this, but the talent component is not inconsequential. Well, let's hope they're not going to California thinking they're going to get a gasoline rebate card. I did hear about that. (laughs) Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom, for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. 
Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks um, as part of her job. She worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit, and then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best, and so we now have people who work for me all over the world, and as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on 
what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview and it it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature.